from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello, my name is Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons as always. Janice, Pixie, Rachel, Whitney, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Katarina, Teresa, Sophie, Nanette, my two Emmas, Emily, Galen, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so much. You guys are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of what you crave. Also, like, share, and subscribe. It just might help our little community grow. So today's podcast will be on John George High. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who was born on July 24th, 1909 in Stamford in Lincolnshire, England. So let's get into some history for that time. The country of Colombia was finally able to recognize Panama's independence from them this year. Also, the British Nimrod expedition took place to the South Pole, led by Ernest Shackleton, arriving at the farthest south reached by any prior expedition, prior to turning back due to diminishing supplies. The last of the United States troops left Cuba after being there since the Spanish-American War in 1898. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, or the NAACP, was founded in New York this year. This group, according to their website, is an interracial American organization created to work for the abolition of segregation and discrimination in housing, education, employment, voting, and transportation to oppose racism and to ensure African Americans their constitutional rights. The inauguration of William Howard Taft as the 27th President of the United States happened this year. Also, construction began on the infamous RMS Titanic at the Harland and Wolf Shipyard in Belfast, Northern Ireland. The city of Tel Aviv was founded by the Jewish community on the outskirts of Jaffa. In 1909, we had the Adana Massacre, Ottoman Turks killed. 15,000 to 30,000 Armenian Christians in the Adana Vilayet. Representatives from England, Australia, and South Africa met at Lord's Cricket Ground and formed the Imperial Cricket Conference. Blue Anchor Line passenger cargo liner SS Waratah, on her second voyage from Australia to Britain, left Durban and was lost without trace with all 211 people aboard. The Indianapolis Motor Speedway opened in the United States. 
Japan and China signed the Gondo Convention, which gave Japan a way to receive railroad concessions in Manchuria. Montreal Canadiens, a well known professional ice hockey club in Canada, was founded in 1909. In Great Britain, the old age pension law was finally instituted, providing pensions for every British subject over 70 with low income. And finally, First U.S. federal legislation on narcotics prohibits importation, possession, and use of smoking opium. So, this was the global atmosphere that John was born into. His parents were John Robert High and Emily Hudson. John Sr. was born in 1872 in Altofs, just southeast of Leeds, England. He studied and was an engineer by trade. Emily was born in 1868, making her four years older than her husband. The couple were members of the Plymouth Brethren, which was an extremely conservative and anti modern Protestant sect who advocated very austere lifestyles. The Plymouth Brethren are more like a non conformist evangelical Christian movement. But don't get too excited. According to somersetlive.co.uk, the movement began in Dublin in the late 1820s with a group of men John Nelson Darby, Anthony Norris Groves, John Bellet, Edward Cronin, and Francis Hutchinson, who felt that the established church had become too involved with the secular state and abandoned many of the basic truths of Christianity. The first Brethren Assembly in England was established at Plymouth in 1831, thus, the Plymouth Brethren name. Among other beliefs, the group believes that the Bible is the supreme authority for church doctrine and practice, above all, the quote, mere tradition of men, end quote. And while this couldn't pertain to our story being from the turn of the century, Current Plymouth Brethren do not use computers in their personal lives and they don't own televisions. It is forbidden to listen to the radio, own pets, which, side note, due to that, I'm out. They aren't allowed to go to college, stand for political office, vote in elections, or even visit places of entertainment. But a rule that they would have lived by back in John's day was that they were only allowed to get married on a Tuesday and were expected to attend church every single day. On Sundays, they can go up to three times that day. Men are expected to work, and women are expected to stay home, cook, clean, and have babies. So, just this general overview gives one the idea of just how strict this religious sect was and still is. So, as far as I could find, John was an only child. He was, again, born into a very strict household by fanatically religious parents. They were always telling him that no matter what he did, quote, the Lord is watching, end quote. People that belong to this religious sect choose not to interact with people outside of their circle. You know, the sinning heathens everywhere. And this left young John very lonely. 
He had no friends to play with, and he himself later stated that his childhood was bleak and lonely. The only camaraderie he had was with a couple of pets that he was somehow permitted to have or the neighbor's dog. While at school, it was said that he had an odd sense of humor and he was bullied. He also committed petty, cruel pranks at church, one being that he would pull the stool out from under the elderly woman who played the organ when she sat down to play. It was also said that they had a couple of pigs for butcher and he chased them around until they quite literally died from exhaustion. His father beat him for this. His father was wholly against any outside influences and built a 10-foot-tall fence around the house to make absolutely sure there would be no interference or temptations from the outside world. His only family-oriented entertainment was reading Bible stories. He was not permitted to join any clubs or play any sports. This was forbidden as well. John's father would tell him that the world was evil, that the family needed to keep to themselves and be separate from the world. Something interesting to note, his father had what I can only think was a birthmark on his head, and he told young John that it was the result of him being a sinner when he was a young boy and that his mother had no such mark because she had lived without sin and was therefore an angel. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that John became both obsessed and terrified, thinking he would develop a mark or, quote, sign of the devil on his own body if he committed even the slightest mistake. It was also said that John suffered from frequently reoccurring religious nightmares as a child. So to escape the stresses of trying to live a sinless life, he occupied his time learning to play the piano, and all sources said he showed a real talent for it. He absolutely loved classical music, which was fortunately permitted. As he came into his later teens, it occurred to him that he didn't have any mark of the sinner on him, just like his mother didn't, except he had lied to people on occasion and had taken part in questionable behaviors. He apparently won a scholarship to Queen Elizabeth Grammar School, then went on to Wakefield Cathedral where he became a choir boy. John began convincing himself that he was invincible and therefore could get away with really anything. His religious nightmares morphed into deeply gothic, twisted nightmares where things like trees would turn into crucifixes that wept blood. As he endured these and his confidence became more and more, he started really manipulating people for his own gain and also became a compulsive liar who could come up with any manner of excuses to get out of negative situations. And this was as much as I could find about his childhood, so let's get into it. According to research out of Boston University, young children who are exposed to very strict religious backgrounds are less able to distinguish between fantasy and reality compared to other children who are not. The result of this study suggests that exposure to religious ideas has a powerful impact on children's differentiation between reality and fiction, 
not just for religious stories, but also for fantastical stories. Quote, By relating seemingly impossible religious events achieved through divine intervention, in other words, Jesus transforming water into wine, to fictional narratives, religious children would more heavily rely on religion to justify their false categorizations, end quote. This blurring of reality and fantasy, even for children, is not always a good thing. Religion blurs the lines between fact and fiction. The hope is that children exposed to it will be able to figure out what is real and what isn't. Some researchers even stated that, in some cases, religious indoctrination is a form of mental child abuse, but there are arguments on both sides of that fence. Michael Walren Jr., a pastor for the First Corinthian Baptist Church in Harlem, told the New York Times, quote, We think of church as a place of healing and transformation, and it is. But for some, religion has been more bruising and damaging than healing and transformative. End quote. He has taken up the sword in confronting a new term, gaining notoriety in some important circles called religious trauma syndrome. This term isn't in the DSM yet, but some clinicians and psychotherapists who work with people like the term for people who are recovering from the harmful effects of religious indoctrination. And in the case of John, we see Christian scripture weaponized, which causes serious damage in the young psyche. Many people suffer for decades from post-traumatic stress disorder type symptoms, including anxiety, self-doubt, and feelings of social inadequacy, though it would appear John went the opposite way. Then we add on the idea that his father told him his own birthmark was a sign of his sinning in his youth and that his mother was without sin, which even to any Christian you run into on the street would tell you is impossible because she had no birthmark. So when John realized he didn't have one either, even though he was well aware of the sins he had committed, it gave him a superiority complex, the feeling that he was invincible. And we also have the social isolation that his parents were convinced was a positive decision with regards to their son. So, how does social isolation affect a child's mental health and development? When we think of social behaviors, we think of a person's thoughts, feelings, and behavioral influences, as well as being influenced by other people. Creating social relationships is central to human well-being and not just for the pure happiness of being with loved ones or even when learning social norms. Experiencing social behavior and engaging in social interaction is crucial during childhood development. The lack of social relationships and behaviors have been shown to affect child development in a lot of ways. Research has shown that socially isolated children tend to have lower educational success, be part of a less advantaged social class in adulthood, and are much more likely to be psychologically distressed in adulthood. On average, if a person is unable to experience their needed level of social contact, they will begin to feel severe isolation. Having social relationships are crucial to the maintenance of health 
including mental health. So the primary function of the human stress response is to protect the body from the environment. When a person is socially isolated, as it is a basic human need, the body will perceive the situation as a threat. During the time of the active stress response, the brain will release multiple stress hormones to protect the body from danger. The release of these hormones is needed for the person to react towards the current stress factor and resist the possible harm. However, the body cannot release these stress hormones and protect the body from stressful situations for unlimited time. Having an active stress response over an extended period has been proven to increase the risk of developing cardiovascular disease, elevated blood pressure, infectious illness, cognitive deterioration, and mortality. These are physiological consequences of being prone to stress over time, and they are typically experienced in adulthood. High levels of stress are therefore regarded as a threat to a socially isolated child's health, not only in their early years of life, but also in adulthood. So what we have is a boy who had no siblings or other children around to share child life experiences with, with two religiously fanatic parents who twisted information to fit their narrative and a 10-foot high fence around their house so that there would be no interaction with people on the other side of the wall because they were most assuredly evil. A boy who was so socially isolated that he began to convince himself that he was invincible. What could possibly go wrong? So let's get back into the story. After finishing his primary education, it was said that he apprenticed to a firm of motor engineers, but only worked there for a year. He was fired for apparently putting sugar into his boss's gas tank. He then went on to work in insurance and advertising and was doing fairly well for himself until it was discovered he was stealing money out of the company cash box. They had no choice but to fire him. In 1934, when John was 25 years old, he met 21-year-old Betty Hammer and they soon married. Betty was described as a bit extroverted and a good-time girl, but after being married less than a year, John was arrested and imprisoned for fraud. Betty had become pregnant and gave birth while John was in prison, but she gave the baby up for adoption and divorced John. And when John was finally released, he moved down to London, and he wasn't out of jail but a hot minute, and he was arrested again, imprisoned for 15 months for fraud involving vehicle sales. Once he was released again and found work as a chauffeur to a man that owned an amusement park named William McSwan. Predictably, this job didn't last very long and he quit. He sort of reinvented himself under the name William Caddo Adamson, though we will still just call him John. But under this new identity, he became a solicitor and was able to open a few locations in London and around. He sold fraudulent stocks and shares to unsuspecting people. 
and he got away with this for a time, but this too had to end as someone noticed some misspellings in his letterheads. He was reported and was given a four-year prison sentence for the fraud. For the next several years, actually, he was in and out of prison. And while he was incarcerated, instead of perhaps rethinking his criminal ways, maybe trying to walk the straight and narrow, mm -mm, he came up with a great idea. He wanted to be able to create the perfect murder. You see, he felt that since he had left his victims of his fraudulent scams alive, that would have to change. He learned about a French murderer named George Alexander Sarre, whose method of getting rid of bodies was by using sulfuric acid. So while working in the prison's tin shop, he began experimenting with field mice, and he discovered it only took around 30 minutes for the body to dissolve. And he was pretty spot on with this method. Researchers back in 2011, after listening to stories about how mobsters would dissolve bodies in sulfuric acid, they decided to try it. They placed pig carcasses in the acid solution with just a bit of water and lo and behold, they were able to observe muscle and cartilage dissolve within 12 hours. The bones took a full 48 hours bit of science for you there. Also, please don't do that. In 1943, the now 34-year-old John found employment as an accountant with an engineering firm, and by chance, he happened to run into his former boss, William McSwan, in a Kensington pub. They sort of rekindled their friendship, and William introduced John to his own parents. While they were chatting it up, the parents mentioned that they had invested in some real estate. They paid their son as an employee, and William went around collecting the rent on these properties, and John became a bit jealous of this lifestyle. He decided he would target the rich old women. John devised a plan and put it to action. He lured William into a basement, bludgeoned him in the head with a lead pipe, and promptly submerged his body in a 40-gallon drum of concentrated sulfuric acid. He left William's remains in that drum for two days. Once he was satisfied that he had mostly dissolved, he emptied the drum down into a manhole. John then went on to tell William's parents that, you know, he had gone into hiding in Scotland to avoid being drafted for World War II, which was now happening in Europe. He offered to work for them, collecting the rent from their properties, and they agreed. In 1944, John was involved in a car accident where he suffered a pretty substantial head injury that also made him bleed from his mouth. Later, he would say that this accident brought back the hellish, religious, blood-filled nightmares he had suffered with as a kid. He also decided to live in William's house, and for a while, things were quiet. But then William's parents began to wonder why their son hadn't returned from Scotland now that the war was beginning to die down. They questioned John regularly. So, he invited them over, telling them that their son was in fact back for a surprise visit. He lured them down into the basement where he bludgeoned both of them to death and they met the same fate as their beloved son.
John then took both the parents and William's possessions, selling some things off, keeping others, sold off the properties, and moved himself into the Onslow Court Hotel. He had amassed what would be, in today's money, about 256,000 pounds. The problem was that he was an excessive gambler, and after only two years of living this way, he was about to run out of money. Since his first three murders had not only been successful, but also quite lucrative, he decided he would repeat this to get more money. He began looking for properties for sale, and that's how he met Dr. Archibald Henderson and his wife, Rose. He then rented a small workshop in West Sussex and began moving acid and drums there from where he had them before. In February 1948, he drove the good Dr. Henderson to his small workshop, telling him that he wanted to show him an invention John had come up with. Once they arrived and went inside, John shot and killed Archibald with his own gun that John had stolen from his home. He then went back to get Rose, telling her that her husband had fallen ill, went back to the workshop where he shot her as well. The couple were then put into the acid-filled drums. John forged a letter from the couple, allowing him to sell all of their possessions, making another 8,000 pounds, which would be roughly 216,000 pounds today. However, it is important to note that he did keep their dog, but disposed of the couple's remains. So in 1949, the now 40-year-old John was still living out of the Onslow Court Hotel, telling people that he was an engineer and, true to form, he was quickly running out of money. And since he had been successful with his first two rounds of murders, he decided that would be his course of action again. He knew of a wealthy widow, 69-year-old Olive Durant Deacon, who was also living at the hotel. She was aware of John and that he was supposedly an engineer, and she actually approached him to discuss her idea about, get this, artificial fingernails. He told her he'd love to go over her idea and to come with him to his workshop, and once they arrived inside, He shot her in the back of the head, robbed her body of any and all valuables, which included a very expensive fur coat, and put her body into a drum filled with acid. Two days later, Olive's friend Constance reported her missing. Now, it was no secret that John was living at that hotel and that Olive had mentioned she was going to approach him about her idea So it didn't take long for detectives to begin looking at him as a possible suspect. Sergeant Lamborn was the one who initially spoke with John about Olive's disappearance. John stated that he had seen Olive before she left the hotel that day and that she had been wearing her favorite coat. The sergeant made a mental note of the fact that John lived in this hotel where most all of the occupants were rich, older women. Two other detectives visited the hotel to question the hotel manager. She told them that she had never seen any visitors come to see John, that he wore expensive clothing and drove very expensive cars. 
She noted that he had, in fact, been late paying the rent for his room recently, but was technically paid up to that day. They thanked her and went upstairs to speak with John again, and he invited them into his room. He said that he had seen Olive that day in the hotel and that she had been carrying a red bag when she left the lobby. What John didn't realize was that one of the investigators was already well aware that John was a con man. In fact, he had interviewed John years ago as a suspect for an earlier crime. They requested a records history search from Scotland Yard, where they discovered all of his prior arrest records and convictions, a rather detailed history of his crimes. The next morning, Olive's disappearance had made the newspapers and were handed out by the policemen, asking anyone if they had seen her, but no one had. And then, finally, one witness came forward, a fellow resident of the hotel. She said that she had run into Olive in the lobby, told her she was going with John to his workshop. And now, the authorities knew they had to get into that shop. Once they gained entry, they were met with a sparse space. There were a few boxes, various tools, and empty bottles of sulfuric acid littered all around. They made a note that the windows had been painted over so no one could see in and very little light entered the room. One bit of inventory was worth taking into evidence, a locked leather hat box. Once they opened the box, they found Dr. Henderson's gun inside, along with eight rounds of ammo in an envelope. There was also heavy red cellophane paper and a receipt from a local dry-cleaning shop for, you guessed it, a black fur coat. As they began questioning local business owners, one said they had bought some jewelry from John that matched Olive's missing items. So at this point, John was at the police station while his room was also being searched. What they found in his room was a bloodstained shirt, a penknife with blood on it. They found a shopping list that included things like bottles of acid, rubber gloves, cellophane, and cotton padding. The authorities had also brought back with them Olive's fur coat and her jewelry. When confronting John with this evidence, he was quoted as saying, quote, If I tell you the truth, you would not believe it. The truth sounds too fantastic for belief. Miss Durand Deacon no longer exists. She has disappeared completely, and no trace of her can be found again. I have destroyed her with acid. Every trace has gone. How can you prove murder if there is no body? End quote. So in essence, he did confess to murdering a total of eight people, but it was impossible to prove. He told the police that he had been drinking his victim's blood and it was driving him insane. But again, there was no way to prove this. What little bit of forensics that were available at that time was able to determine that a brown sludge behind the shop was indeed human remains. The doctor that examined the remains found a total of 28 pounds of body fat, a partial foot, gallstones from one of the victim's gallbladder, part of a denture which was later identified as belonging to Olive by her dentist. 
His story made the headlines in the Daily Mirror newspaper, calling him a vampire. In August of 1949, John went to trial. Because he couldn't afford to pay for his own attorney, the newspaper, News of the World, offered to pay for his lawyer for the exclusive rights to his story. He agreed. He was ultimately found guilty of murdering six people with no appeal rights. It was said that he asked a prison guard if it would be possible to, quote, have a trial run on my hanging to iron out any issues, end quote. He spoke with a doctor in prison stating, quote, I saw a forest of crucifixes which gradually turned into trees. At first, I seemed to see dew or rain running from the branches, but when I came nearer, I knew it was blood. All of a sudden, the whole forest began to twist about and the trees streamed with blood. Blood ran from the trunks. Blood ran from the branches, all red and shiny. I felt weak and seemed to faint. I saw a man going round the trees gathering blood. When the cup he was holding in his hand was full, he came up to me and said, Drink. But I was paralyzed. The dream vanished, but I still felt faint and stretched out with all my strength toward the cup. End quote. John told the doctor that these visions were what led him to murder. He then gave the newspaper his entire life story. His mother sent her greetings to him through a reporter. Later that same month, he was hanged at Wandsworth Prison with a crowd of 500 people gathered. But before he died, he agreed to model for a death mask being made by a waxworks company. He even donated his own clothing to go on his likeness. So George was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. This is, of course, included in the cluster B personality disorders. The Mayo Clinic states that cluster B is characterized by dramatic, overly emotional or unpredictable thinking or behavior. They also include antisocial, borderline and histrionic personality disorders. People with narcissistic personality disorder have an inflated sense of their own importance, a deep need for excessive intention and admiration, troubled relationships, and a lack of empathy for others. However, behind this mask of extreme confidence lies a fragile self-esteem that's vulnerable to even the slightest bit of criticism. Now, a genetic link is suspected, but there are also theories that excessive praise or judgment by parents contribute to this personality disorder. He could have had a genetic propensity toward this, but I heavily believe his upbringing in the fact that his parents raised him in such a strict, isolating environment where they believed they were better and above most all of the rest of the human race because of their religion was the icing on the cake, so to speak. But tell me guys, what do you think? Leave a comment below or DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. I'm pretty active over there. You can like, subscribe, share, anything will help our little community. But most importantly, Thank you so much for listening, because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me, and I really appreciate that. Thanks, fam. Have a great day.